Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students looking at issues in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject. And we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipom Gomezulu. And my name is Mahita Ikani. And, and we're, we're your hosts. So here we are. We thought we'd get together just before the mid-season break for this year and reflect and reminisce on the 14 shows that we've done in 2017. That's pretty exciting. It is actually. It's funny how when you're in the middle of a project and you're working on it and you're doing stuff and you're creating and you're making, one can lose track of how much one's actually done. And all the amazing guests we've had on the show and really expanded what we do on our daily basis to touch base with academics in South Africa, on the continent, around the world. Yeah, it's really actually one of my favorite things about this project is getting to speak to all these clever, brilliant people all the time and always learning so much from them. We've had, we've got 14 episodes under our belt for 2017. This is on top of the 30 that we did in 2016, by the way. So we've got quite a nice little archive of conversations growing. Mm. Looking back, what would you say has been one of the most interesting or inspiring topics that you've explored? I think starting right at the beginning with the first interview as a newbie to the academic citizen, I was completely blown away with our interview with Professor Brenda from the African School of Languages, who is just an incredible powerhouse of knowledge and insights. And I think for me, starting off with that show was really important while we are speaking about decolonization, Africanization, to get the perspective of someone who is practicing in the field, who not only has a wealth of knowledge on practice that's going on right now, but has such a beautiful vision for the future. And I think that for me was one of the, my favorite episodes to do and the first episode that I did. Something so powerful about actually talking to people who are actively and busy now, every moment of every day, decolonizing education. Like instead of talking, there's a lot of talk about decolonization. But it's very inspiring to engage with people who just do it as part of their day-to-day activity. They don't need like fanfare. They don't need special like commendation or recognition. It's literally so deeply integrated into their practice, their pedagogical practice. And I think what was really important for me to learn from her is that it doesn't need a special occasion to begin. And I think all of our guests actually this season, uh, whether we've been talking to scholars in India, talking about wage gaps in university, gender gaps in university, all of these people are thinking quite seriously about where to start now. There isn't going to be a magical post-colonial moment that will Mm. usher us into decolonization. But it's all these academics who are often over and above what they actually do in their day-to-day work, starting to do this important work. And I think that's what has been really insightful for me about the season, is just seeing where the first step can be for all of us in our various disciplines. Absolutely. I mean, speaking about decolonial, postcolonial perspectives, one of the most interesting conversations I recorded was with um, Jigisha Bhattacharya, who's a postgrad student in India, mm. and got all sorts of insight into what's going on in the higher education landscape over there. And it was really, well, there were lots of quite amazing things that I learned in that conversation. But the one thing that kind of stayed with me was just this, this knowledge that we are not unique. Sure. Here in South Africa, there's you know a lot of South African scholars think that we have particularly exceptional and special circumstances, 
in this country. And even though, yes, of course, we have a unique history, we have unique traumas and unique challenges that we have to face, we also in some ways are in a very similar boat to colleagues elsewhere in the world mm. who are also battling increasingly privatized, increasingly marketized institutions, battling gender discrimination. Mm. I mean, the one thing that just made my jaw drop to the floor in the conversation with Chikisha was about the ways in which women residences, halls of residences at her university in Delhi are submitted to a curfew yeah. that male residences are not. So the women students have to be home mm. and are under lock and key for, at a certain, I think it's 8 or 9 p.m. at night, and they're not allowed to leave again until the morning. And that just kind of blew my mind because that's a particular struggle that's mm. happening, which is not purely about decolonization, but it's about power and the exercise of power in our universities and, and who's, who's, who's under the boot mm. and how that experience of oppression is sometimes very, very clear and very um, unambiguous. No, sure. And I, I think what I found really fascinating in your conversation with her is that we often struggle to speak across contexts, especially when we're pushed to constantly be thinking about South-to-South -South collaboration, is to ask ourselves, do we have similar language? I mean, I visited India for the first time last year, and one of the big things was finding a common language to talk about power, because we do have quite unique contexts, and so to not... Uh, overshadow what these differences might be, but also finding a way of really engaging with one another on key issues that we might have in common is really, really important. So for those of you listening and keen to know which episodes we're talking about, the, the one that Nosipo first mentioned with Prof Mkhlambi is episode 32, which you can find on our website. And the one I mentioned about experiences in India is episode 35 titled Student Resistance in India. And I think it spoke quite nicely to episode 40. I had the, the privilege of speaking to Dr. Asanda Benya at UCT about the gender gap in universities. And one of the big things I think what was quite important was her insistence that when we speak gender, we often right-click synonym and think we're speaking only women. Mm -hmm. And her insistence that as we're talking about issues of power discrepancies, that we need to invite men to the table, that we also need to recognize that non-binary persons, gender non-conforming persons are part and parcel of our conversations about gender. And I think it's so important that when we talk about power, we're also able to bring in groups that are not just on the margins, but those who might have the seat of power and need to check themselves before mm. they wreck themselves, as mm. it were. But yeah, this theme of gender has been quite strong for us so far this year. And obviously, we're both women scholars. So we have a particular set of experiences that we each speak from, and they're obviously not exactly the same. Um, but gender has been a theme, hasn't mm. it? I mean, the episode with Asanda was wonderful. I also had a, a, an amazing conversation, um, not specifically actually about gender but about scientific research but i mm. really enjoyed the conversation with the scholar in question nospiwe nkwala ah nospiwe is a legend i had a wonderful legend. conversation with nospiwe nkwala and we spoke all about like science and i'm not a scientist and you know i'm not a scientific thinker but she just brought alive for me some of the big questions that she's tackling and and we had this really like wide-ranging conversation about about science and how it can be africanized and how it can be decolonized mm. and even though we didn't specifically talk about gender i felt so strongly 
the empowerment as a fellow woman of listening to another fellow woman scholar mm. leading the way in these kinds of debates was really, really inspiring. So that was um, episode 41 about Africanizing scientific research. Which we also got a chance in episode 34, if you remember, of speaking with Dr. Nicole DeVette, who is in, in populations, who's a population studies expert rather, um, and looking at demographic research, especially around adolescence. And I think that for me, as a lot of us are not only just citizens of this country, but as active citizens, as academics who are trying to answer some of the difficult questions that we face, not just in the classroom, but in our day-to-day -day, you know, experiences of being part and parcel of this country, I was really also quite excited by the fact that as somebody who begins in a non-scientific track, she was able to move into incorporating the sciences. Because I think also finding the language of kind of like exploring some issues that are not necessarily in your field or that you feel like, ah, I don't have the expertise for. And then you see someone as a young undergraduate student, quite importantly, getting the mentorship and support to then be able to pursue a degree in the sciences. And also then later being recognized with an award. Also, women in science in Africa is really quite important, I think, because her work speaks to not only what we are grappling with in higher education and thinking about transdisciplinary uh, work, but also how we can tackle these real life questions mm. and problems in, in really concrete ways. Mm. Yeah, this kind of speaks to, I guess, one of the big themes that inspired us to want to work on this, this podcast project. So we're concerned with power, and this idea of power has come up a lot. We're, we're, we care about and we're interested in understanding how power shapes mm. the institutions that we work in. And we're also interested in understanding how universities can and should operate in terms of their public mandate, mm, right? Certainly. And all these questions about accessibility and kind of mainstreaming previously marginalized groups like women, like people of color, like people from African settings, right, is central to, I guess, the kinds of conversations we're trying to open up here on The Academic Citizen. Certainly. I nod vigorously on radio. <laughs> Nodding vigorously. Just, I mean, you've done the, the entire first season, an amazing first season it was, um, and joining the show in the second season has been really insightful for me to be able to engage with scholars of just like such different mm. disciplines from mm. what my everyday engagement has been. Mm. And yeah. And you've brought so much also to the show. I mean, I'm like super, super, super happy that you, you joined the team because it's also opened up, I think, the space to new and like really important discussions. Um, I think one of the most inspiring shows that you that you did that I loved was uh, episode forty-two, beautifully titled "The Art of Language." Oh, where you had heard. such a wonderful conversation with with Dr. Klese Kunje. Can you tell us a bit more about how you experienced that interview? Sure. Um, actually, it was quite uh, funny because I, I've known Klese for a very long time uh, in my many years that I spent in Grahamstown. And so it was quite interesting to be able to speak with him about the work that we do, not just kind of bumping into him as he does his amazing poetry shows, or his operas, um, and not just, you know, being touted as the first Hossa PhD, mm -hmm. which is a huge milestone. But I feel like a lot of people when speaking to Shlesia are kind of like not talking to him about his research, not actually curious about mm -hmm. the process of mm -hmm. doing ethnographic field work and then writing it in his Hossa. I, mm -hmm. I, I thought that as a scholar, he brought such rigor to I think a topic that is really seldom explored and mm. taken seriously like we have people talking about the borders between African countries being so porous and yet when we go back to our scholarship we just reiterate those same borders mm. and I think his research is really important in us interrogating what 
are these borders mm. and especially ethnic divides and being able to engage with Xhosa speakers um, and the Xhosa community based in Zimbabwe shows us that our African countries need not be so separated. Mm. Um, and I, I just adore Shezé. I think as an artist also, he's absolutely incredible. And I think he brings not only a, a rigorous scholarship, but that artistic eye. Mm. His his use of language mm. is beautiful. It's poetic. Mm. And, and I think that I really enjoyed engaging with him on, on how we can not only theoretically engage with the question of incorporating African languages, but in practice, what does it look like mm. to code switch from Setswana to Isikosa mm. to Afrikaans, because now he's working at Salt Lake University, where it's just such a, a diverse pool of students to to engage with. Mm. And as uh, Dr. Brennan Klambe mentioned, that these things we can do in our daily practice in the classroom, um, and our students are all the better for it, because mm. this is the kind of context we're in. We mm. are only made richer by the diverse voices that we encounter. Absolutely. I mean, and, and his... PhD was so fascinating, the topic mm. of it was so fascinating, and what he had to say about pedagogy, as you said, was so fascinating. The one thing he said that really stuck with me after I listened to that conversation was how he said, he was being really kind of humble about it, I think, but it also he said something really powerful. He said, this this thesis that I wrote in Isinkosa, it's not Hlezi's thesis, it's mm. the thesis of the Xhosa people. Mm. I was like, wow, what an expansive and deeply generous thing to say. Mm. I don't think I've ever heard a British or American scholars say this thesis is for the American people. The the last episode that I did with Atambile Masola, uh, episode 44 on public intellectuals, she too was very cognizant of when we are, you know, touting Ubuntu as a slogan, we often miss that Ubuntu is not a slogan on a t-shirt, it's mm. a practice. Mm. And for her engaging with the idea of being a public intellectual, mm. a, a title that she herself just like avoids mm. and is fraught with all kinds of implications, is the recognition that knowledge ought not to be housed in ivory towers or only attributed to individuals, but is recognizing that what does this knowledge do in the world? Mm. How do we take what we are doing in our labs, in our classrooms, and engage with a broader public that has a vested interest mm. in these ideas. Um, and I think so many of our guests as well, I think it was episode 36 on mm. online learning, also just working on how do we then engage with people who can't make it to the hallowed halls of yeah. higher education and mm. taking quite seriously that like the internet is not a magic sword. It's not a silver bullet that solves all. Mm. And I think um, Dr. Susan Levine, also at UCT, was really insightful in, in not only telling us the, the possibilities and and the, the potential of online learning, but also making us cognizant of this is not a one-size-fits-all solution, mm -hmm. that as we are advancing towards engaging students mm -hmm. online, we also need to be aware that yeah, the internet doesn't fix all, that yeah. we, we, we do need to sharpen our democratic practice and our, and our ideas of what access mm -hmm. is, just simply, you know, passing students Absolutely. tablets or putting courses online does not it's make not for fix it. you know opening up access yeah yeah and this ties into this like ongoing thing that keeps cropping up for us is like what is it what does it mean for a university to be a public institution mm. right does it mean that as many students as possible get access to the knowledge etc housed in the university yes maybe that's part of it um but it also, I think it also has something to do with how we do our research. And this idea of community-engaged research has come up quite a few times, mm. actually. Um, we did one whole episode on it um, quite early on this year, episode 37, where we spoke to Professor Tanya Winkler, who's done 
a lot of community-engaged research, and she kind of talked us through all the pitfalls and mm. opportunities that community-engaged research can offer. Um, and it's, you know, it's a bit of a thorny terrain, because mm. um, so often as researchers we go out there and we interview and we do field work and then we're like, okay, bye, and then we go home and we write our stuff up and we publish it. And she made quite a strong argument about, actually, no, if, if our research is publicly funded, it needs to matter to the mm. communities in which it's being done. And those communities also need to be actively able to participate in that research. So that was a really enlightening conversation um, also. So... Engaged communities, public universities, sometimes it feels a bit like this wonderful, idyllic, you know, nirvana that may never come. But at least we can have conversations about how we might get there. Um, I, I want to speak to you a little bit about, I mean, engaged scholarship is really key. At, but on this issue of access, uh, you did episode 39 on mm -hmm. cycleversities, oh, yeah. uh, an issue that is very close to you. and bit something a, that you a pet topic, that one. <laughs> but I, I think that's quite important because it's not only, you know, we, the academic citizen, I think for me, was not only about, you know, going to explore what others are doing out there, but also to further explore things that I otherwise don't have time to really yeah. engage with uh, in my classroom or in my research. So as somebody who is an enthusiast, also yeah. somebody who's involved in cycling community, yeah. tell us a little more about, you know, um, that episode and what yeah. it was like, you know, engaging with something that you're so deeply that was involved a, with. That was a really fun episode. So in that episode, um, we spoke to Dr. Jogu Morgan, who is not only an enthusiastic commuter cyclist, but also wrote his entire PhD on cultures of cycling in Johannesburg and other cities around the world, including, I think, Beijing, Copenhagen, Chicago, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, so it was kind of a fun conversation because it was two kind of committed commuter cyclists. We both primarily use our bicycles as a mode of transport. I only use my bicycle as a mode of transport. It's not like for racing or anything. Mm. You know, I'm not interesting fast <laughs> on my bicycle ever. But yeah, so we just talked about commuter cycling and what it can do for a city, but also what it can do for a university campus. Mm. I think this is something, you know, universities have been a bit slow to, to pick up on. And there's huge potential to, with a small amount of investment, to really transform a space and to make it feel more welcoming and less congested, quieter. That was the one thing that he mentioned that I'd never thought of before. He was like, he'd spent a lot of time, obviously, in very cycle-intensive cities. And he just mentioned standing in Copenhagen, looking around and seeing all these bicycles whizzing by and suddenly realizing it was quiet. And I was like, wow, imagine a quiet campus without mm. the sounds of buses revving and cars revving. And, you know, wow, maybe we'd all just have a much more intellectually productive time. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. And, and I think, I mean, things like making our universities more access physically accessible mm. not mm. only to people with cars not only mm. with people who can afford uber every day mm -hmm. um, which is environmentally just unsound is really important for us to consider and this, this place is not just only a thinking space but we have to build community exactly. in, in these particular spaces in next season the next half rather of the mm. season we're definitely going to be engaging more also on issues of just like what does it mean when all these changes are happening in our universities mm. how do those ripple effects feed into the cities that we live in, mm -hmm. um, especially given, you know, Johannesburg and everyone's preoccupation with mm -hmm. questions of crime, gender-based violence, is how do we then think about, like, these moves that we're making to change our public mm -hmm. um, institutions, how do they then translate if the world outside the gates of university remains, you know, pretty much yeah. the same? Yeah, this ivory tower metaphor has also come up over and over again. Like, are we just in ivory towers that are physically physically and metaphysically kind of separated from the rest of the world, the real world? 
you know, and I would argue no, but mm. then I'd go onto campus and it feels that way mm. because you have to zap in, you have to zap out. There are walls and gates and fences everywhere. I think it's an awful uh, stereotype as well, um, which I hope through our show we're able to kind of show that we're not just these bookish people who sit all day booking hard. You are definitely you not know? a bookish person. I mean, if, if, <laughs> listeners, if you could just see the stylish um, hipster woman sitting here. I know hipster is probably a terrible word to use. Well, describe. I mean, these, these are the metaphors we live by, right? And I think the, the idea of, of the, the ivory tower is something that sometimes we as academics then feed reproduce. back into and reproduce. Mm -hmm. And what has been really amazing mm -hmm. about the season is just seeing the many ways that people push the walls to bring other voices and yeah. other experiences into the classroom mm -hmm. and also taking the classroom outside um, because knowledge doesn't only live in these buildings. Yeah. yeah. And one of the walls we pushed and which I actually was one of my most fun and exciting episodes to record was about executive pay at universities and pretty controversial. In episode 43, I had a fantastic conversation with Professor Rasagan Maharaj, who is an economist, Marxist economist, more or less Marxist economist. I'm sure he'll have something to say about how I've characterized his intellectual positioning. But we had a long conversation about kind of how universities are structured economically, who produces value in the institution and who profits from that value. So mm. taking the kind of classic Marxist analysis, right, of labor, so in a university, the workers, the laborers who are producing value in terms of teaching and research are mostly academic staff. Yet when we look at the pay scales of senior management, they earn, I would argue, obscenely high amounts, which don't necessarily have a correlation to the value that they're producing. Mm. So we had a very, very interesting and I think could potentially quite incendiary conversation about that and I really enjoyed that conversation it was quite it was quite fun and the thing that stayed with me about that was um, his argument that okay we've had long conversations about minimum pay in, in our what's fair what's a fair minimum wage he said we should also be thinking about what's a fair maximum wage we, we don't talk enough about that because on one level we as academics are we're sensitive like uh, Erica Badu says we're artists we're sensitive about the work that we do we are. but in the same breath we the value that is produced by support staff whether it's admin cleaning staff goes as invisible labor mm. like we ought to just simply mm. miraculously have clean bathrooms and mm -hmm. lecture halls and course outlines appear when we when we deem them to appear and so to ask the question of like not only what is fair valuing of the kind of other labor that happens that is not necessarily the academic labor but is integral to that process and then asking what does it mean when we pay managers so much two million um, a year sometimes sure sometimes more i mean some universities but top vice chancellors are earning in the region of three million a year which by the way is slightly more than our president officially earns wow and so looking at uh i mean our engagements with the financials of universities and because in a, in many ways we're not just doing headwork we live in a world where material valuing of things matters right and uh, the episode uh, 33 that you did on universities and medical aid also touched on these issues of how do we do this very complex thing of our institutions catering not only for the needs of top executives, but also for the lowest earning members of our universities. And not not simply to kind of have a knee-jerk reaction of kind of going, well, let's bash down the walls. Everybody's going to pay the same amount, but also recognizing that we don't have a adequate public health system that is able to cater for everybody. 
And I think that episode you did really dealt with those uh, complexities of how do we, when we talk about equality, think about it in ways that the highest earning person and the lowest earning person can get as many benefits mm. from medical aid. Mm. Yeah, the medical aid episode was super interesting. I was a bit nervous about that episode, but had a chat with Prof. Alex Vandenhierbo, who's got a huge amount of experience in research and policy advising in kind of public sector, social benefits, um, the social benefits area. Um, and it was very enlightening, that conversation, because medical aid is kind of a hot topic mm. at the moment, at WITS in particular, but I think universities around the country as well. Um, and, you know, the fact that we have to have medical aid is one debate, mm. right? The, the kind of the way the national health system is not meeting the needs of its citizens. That's one debate. Another debate where if we say, okay, well, you know, we have to accept the fact that medical aid is kind of a necessity of life, mm. even though in a social democracy that we all would hope to live in, it wouldn't be privatized, but it is. So then how then can we ensure that the privatized medical insurance that we are getting is as just and as fair and as inclusive as possible? And most medical insurance companies are interested in, obviously, paying out as little as possible and you know, making as much as possible. But it's all about how the schemes are organized. So I learned about the difference between open and closed schemes. And I learned that the open schemes, even though they're sometimes kind of represented as being more fair and more accessible because they're slightly cheaper, are often actually the more exclusionary mm. and the more unjust schemes. And actually that what universities should be working towards, and this was the argument of Prof. Fandenhierva, was that Actually, we need a sector-wide medical insurance scheme that includes everyone who's working at a university, whether they're a vice chancellor or a cleaner or an academic staff member, and that that scheme should be closed, not open, because once it's open, it's on the free market and they can manipulate it and exclude people for all sorts of arbitrary reasons. Mm. But in a closed scheme, that's how we can protect each other, those of us who work in the same sector. So that was like super, super interesting. I learned a lot. And for anyone who's like doesn't quite get how the medical aid system works and how it might be changing, I'd really recommend having a listen to that because it might help. I like the fact that you've mentioned sector-wide solutions to many of the, the challenges that we're facing. They're not just simply a Gauteng problem, an Eastern Cape problem, a Western Cape problem. There are also there are many incongruities about the way in which special apartheid was set up that we have a situation where we've got universities grappling with similar problems but working in silos mm -hmm. to solve these challenges that they are faced. Our students also from various institutions are facing similar challenges and yet are often asked to kind of solve these these issues mm -hmm. institutionally with the market difference of what we saw um, in the last two years with fees must fall, roads must mm. fall, suddenly students actually showing the way of mm. how we can actually start to have generative conversations across the sector. Mm. And I think it's really important as South Africans, but not only as South Africans, but people working on the continent, people who are working in post-colonial states to really take seriously that we are on very similar boats. We might be in different cabins, but we certainly are facing similar challenges. And it's important for us not to think of these issues as solvable only in particular contexts, yeah. but able to learn from each other and our, our various experiences mm -hmm. has been invaluable for me to actually mm -hmm. be able to, to get insights from UCT, get insights uh, from Rhodes, get insights from uh, Salt Blakey mm. to be able to say, actually, there are many ways in which we can learn and bolster the solution generating powers, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that just sums up pretty much what we try to do on this podcast. And 
um, taking a short break over the winter. Mm-hmm. Our winter, if you're listening in the global north, we have different seasons to you. Um, so we're taking a little break over the winter, but I guess those are some of the things that we're going to be looking at. Certainly, certainly. I think um, we're going to miss you so much while you're on sabbatical. So this is probably a good time to say I'm taking a little break from the podcast while I go on sabbatical. But um, between between you, yourself, and you... And our very, very talented producer, Simbarashe Honde, who is graduating today. Congratulations! In journalism. I think the podcast is in brilliant hands. I can't wait to listen and see what you guys do. And I'll always be here in spirit and in moral support and supporting you in any way. No, certainly. And I, and I think we've been quite excited with our collaborations with The Journalist, uh, who, if you are a follower of The Journalist, you should check out our podcast feature uh, there once a month. And our producer, just making sure that we're able to ensure that student voices are part and parcel of the conversations. So next half of the season, we'll certainly be pushing that further to be able to engage your insights. So if you're listening and you want to give us feedback, suggestions, would like to be on the show, our details are on the website and we would love to engage with more people who are academic citizens. And one last word is, is if you like the podcast, if you like what we're doing, please uh, share it, tell someone about it, um, send the link to a friend um, and help us get more listeners. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the second half of this season after the winter break. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by me, Simbarashe Wondem. Jager Merkel created our jingles.